Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin, which is a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Russ Brio. He's one of the preeminent experts on the Shroud. We're going to be focusing on the early references to the Shroud uh, from the third century to the 13th century. One of the interesting references though, specifically to the Shroud in the Bible, other than the linens in the tomb, is from Paul in Galatians 3.1, where he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. Now that quote is from the NRSV. There are a couple of different interesting translations of that where uh, you might be able to uh, uh, might be able to refer to the eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited, uh, where it's slightly different. In any case, uh, there's uh, a handful of biblical references to the linens. And then there are many, many references, and Russ is going to be talking about those that span the history of kind of the, the dark ages almost from the first century all the way to the 13th century, and more importantly, prior to the radiocarbon dating of 1260 to 1390. So with that, let, let me introduce Russ. Russ Briel has been researching and lecturing on the Shroud of Turin for over 30 years. He's highly, his highly acclaimed presentation known as Shroud Encounter makes use of over 200 images and unfolds like a CSI investigation. Russ is presented to hundreds of audiences from New York to Hawaii. He has, appear, he has appeared in nationally televised documentaries, including Mysteries of the Ancient World on CBS, Uncovering the Face of Jesus on the History Channel, and CNN's Finding Jesus. He was a significant consultant to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. for the development of their high-tech interactive exhibit on the Shroud that just opened and is still open through about July. Definitely uh, something that needs to be on your bucket list to get there if you can uh, uh, before the end of July. He's, done, uh, he's been to all three public ex exhibitions of the Shroud in Italy. Uh, he's a longtime member of the Shroud Science Group, and he is the president and founder of the Shroud of Turin Education Project, also known as STERA, which has the mission to advance the knowledge of the Shroud to a new generation. Russ, thank you so much for being here. So glad to have you. Hey, Guy, my pleasure to be here with you again. Yes. And, um... Uh, by the, the acronym for, for my organization is STEP, however, uh, uh, not to be confused with STERA, which is, which, which is Barry Schwartz's organization, uh, of which I am a member of, but by the way, I'm, uh, I'm on his board of direction of, uh, of directors. But, but anyways, thanks again for having me. It's, uh, you know, very, uh, I think what you're doing here with these, with these podcasts is, 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 um, is really important. So thank you for uh, including me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here and thank you for the correction. I will definitely make sure that happens. So today, what we wanted to talk about was this paper uh, that Russ is just putting together. It's uh, historical references of the Turin Shroud from the third through the 13th centuries. And uh, well, you can't quite see it very well with the, uh, the lighting on it, but uh, really interesting, a whole good compendium of different things that refer specifically or potentially not so specifically to the shroud over those 13 centuries. So Russ, what prompted you to put this together? Well, first of all, anyone can find this article if you go to academia.edu and search for that specific title or my name, you'll find it, uh, Russ Brialt, and you'll find it. <laughs> it's the only one I have up there right now. So um, I'm gonna be populating it with more. Uh, but this is really important, um, and you know, per your 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 question, is that you know there is this either or proposition with the shroud, and that it either is the authentic birth shroud of Jesus, or it's not. And if it's not, well, then what is it? 
If it's not authentic, then it must be the work of an artist. It must be the work of human effort, you know, some way, shape or form. And if that's the case, then there must be some trace of paint, ink, dye, pigmentation, stain. There must be some substances on the cloth to account for the image. But there aren't any. You have a whole pattern of blood stains that correlate with the wounds that were sustained during the crucifixion. Is it just paint? Is it animal blood? Is it human blood? Is it blood from actual wounds? Well, it's blood from actual wounds. In fact, it's characterized as the exudate from wounds, AB blood type, human male DNA, found that out in 1995. So the plot certainly thickens now. And it's so it's not just such an easy thing to glibly say that this is the work of some 14th century artist. But the reason that I'm compelled to write this article and, um, and is, is because in 1988, you had a confluence of factors that were aligned against the shroud. <laughs> you know, because in 1978, you had a whole team of scientists, 33 American scientists go to Turin. They have access to the cloth for five days, round the clock, working in shifts. And, it, you know, 120 hours continuously. And their primary concern was, was kind of answering two questions. Number one, what's the cause of the image? Number two, is the blood blood? And they determined that it is not the work of an artist and the blood was blood. And so, so that seemed to suggest that the shroud could very well be authentic. And now that was 1978. The results were published in 81. And then 1988 comes along, 10 years later. And the Shroud was carbon dated by three different carbon dating labs. Nope, not so fast. Because they came up with a date range of 1260 to 1390. Well, now the Shroud can't possibly be authentic. Must be the work of some 14th century artist. And so, but the problem is, is that these two scientific uh, studies are in complete contradiction with each other. So you have one scientific study that says, seems like the cloth could be authentic. And then you have another scientific study that says, nope, can't be authentic. So now we have to choose, which one do we believe? Which one is accurate? And so, so then we dig a little deeper and find out what happened during the carbon 14 dating debacle and we realize and you probably cover this with some of your other interviews i'm i'm, I'm sure but you know uh, but you know now we know that that sample that was cut the original protocol called for cutting three different samples they didn't cut three samples they cut one sample where did they cut it from from the outside corner edge the most held and handled part of the cloth which we know historically has been lit, literally held, manually held up by clerics and prelates of the church on a platform, holding it up manually for hours upon hours upon hours at that precise corner over 275 times. So if you were looking for the worst possible sample location, you would cut from one of those two top outside corners, which is, of course, <laughs> what they did. And so now uh, the uh, so now we have a good reason to wonder to question the veracity of the sample. And then in 2005, Ray Rogers publishes his work. He's a chemist. He he obtains thread samples from the main body of the shroud and compares them with thread samples from that same carbon 14 corner and says they're not the same. Well, how can they not be the same? They're from the same cloth. Well, apparently. You know, there's cotton mixed in with the threads in that corner. No cotton anywhere else on the shroud. There's some kind of a matter root dye in that corner. No dye anywhere else on the shroud. You know, you, you have this presence of starch in, in, in that corner. No starch anywhere else on the shroud. So you seem to have all the ingredients for some kind of a medieval repair or some kind of a medieval reweave or something at least at a minimum is awry with that corner. Now, well, a reweave would be the probably the the simplest explanation. Maybe there's more explanations. I don't know, but but so 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 now we have 
the most significant carbon dating event of the 20th century, hanging on one questionable sample that now has come under a great deal of scrutiny as to whether it is in fact representative of the entire cloth. So it bears, so, so now we're brought into juxtaposition again between these two scientific efforts, 78 versus 88. Which one is correct? Well, I can tell you right now, carbon-14 is not correct. And that's where this paper comes in. And you can find it on academia. And because, so now let's, let's put science aside because you can only, science can only take you so far. And now we're gonna have to look at the historical trail. Now I'm gonna tell you how the stars were aligned in 88 against the, the shroud. And that's this. So you have, so it was said that the, the person who had possession of the shroud in France, when it, was, when it was revealed in Western Europe for the first time was Geoffrey de Charnay, the most honorable noble knight of the 14th century. I mean, this guy was well, was, was well regarded by kings and nobles. I mean, he was commissioned by, by King James to write the, the book on, on, um, on chivalry. I mean, I mean, this guy was the man. I mean, he was like the Billy Graham of knights. And, it's, um, and so, so, so here he is, you know, he has this shroud in, in 1356. Now, 1356, right smack in the date range between 1260 and 1390. Aha, that proves it. The shroud must have originated with Jeffrey. He must have concocted it or hired someone to, to fabricate it. He must be involved in this fraud. Yet there's nothing about Jeffrey that would suggest that he would ever be party to a fraud. And then you have another star that, 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 that also aligned at that same time which is called the Darcis Memorandum. Now, Pierre Darcis was the Bishop of, of, of Troyes, and we might say Troy here in the, in the United States, uh, and in, in, in this is in France. And, and so the Bishop in 1389, Geoffrey de Charnay's son was going to exhibit the shroud again in 1389 in Luray. Well, the, the Bishop Darcis was upset because that was gonna take pilgrims away from his cathedral that boasted several relics that were stolen from Constantinople in 1204. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then, um, and so he was concerned that this collegiate church down in Luray, now collegiate meant that it, it, it was established by the auspices of the Pope and not necessarily the Bishop. So it didn't come under the authority of the Bishop of, of of, of Troy, it's kind of it's its own. It's kind of had with, had its own sovereignty, if you will, and so um, so. Anyways, he was upset because also in 1389 the entire roof of his cathedral collapsed, and so he needed some money, and and this is um, and so and so the there's there's nothing about his claim that the shroud was exhibited in 1389 is the same one that was exhibited in 1356, which it was, but there's nothing about his claim that that cloth was simply the work of an artist. That's what he alleged. He alleged that it was the work of an artist and this alleged artist had made a confession. Where's the confession? Not a single word from that confession is ever quoted anywhere. And so the, the and now, 1978, we have access to that cloth. Sorry, Bishop Darcy's, it's not a painting. I don't know what you were looking at, but it wasn't the shroud that we see. Also, it was described as a, as a, as a plain cloth. There's nothing plain about the shroud. It is a very complex three to one herringbone pattern twill weave, very, doable in first century, but very expensive, which is suggestive that that is something that Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, would have had the wherewithal to purchase it. There's nothing about any of the descriptions made by Darcis or his predecessor that relate to the shroud. But again, here you have 1389, you have a bishop saying the shroud was a painted forgery. You have, you have, you have this carbon date of 1260 to 1390. You have you, you have Jeffrey 
DeCharnay first revealing it in 1356, right smack in the middle of that carbon date. Surely this is the smoking gun. Yeah. But it's not. Yeah. As absolutely. they say, it was not, it was not as it seemed. <laughs> and you know. So and, and that's where we have the other side of the story. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it is so interesting, uh, you know, and as you're talking, I could just, you know, a whole lot of different thoughts go, you know, go through my mind as to what Darcy's, Bishop Darcy's, uh, whether he actually meant the shroud that was in Lyrae, or whether he had meant it was a copy, because there are copies uh, of the shroud that had been made. So it could have been a copy um, or it could have been that, you know, to your point, it's there was politics and there was money involved. And whoever says there's not politics and money involved in anything that happens. And uh, and even, you know, when you think about the radiocarbon dating, there was politics and money involved. And uh, and yet, to your point, uh, Jeffrey de Charnay, you know, he carried the Or de Flamme, you know, a, a huge uh uh, you know, a, a huge opportunity for him. He wrote the book on chivalry. He wrote actually three books. So there is no way that he would be a guy that would say, let's make a fake copy and let's show it at the uh, church, the collegiate church in, uh, in Lyre, France. Yeah, exactly. So the problem with all this is that these convergence of these three elements, Carbon date, Jeffrey, and the allegations of Darcy's caused the critics of the Shroud to look no further, to just assume that the carbon date must be correct because it correlates with these other two things. And they purposely failed or chose not to look at Constantinople because Constantinople in 1204, we can call it the hinge of history. Everything related to the Shroud historically hinges on Constantinople in 1204. And because you see, we know that there was a cloth in Constantinople, the burial, the syndrome. It had an image of Jesus on it. And it, it went missing during the Fourth Crusade. Now, the Fourth Crusade was a horrible time of, of church history. And, you know, in the the uh, the Crusaders had arranged with the with the Duke of uh, or the or the Doge of Venice to build a whole fleet of sailing ships, sail them down to the Holy Land to Egypt, basically, and then they would travel on foot after that. But but the Crusaders only raised about a third of the money needed to pay the Doge for all the ships he built. So now they got a problem. They owe a huge debt to the Doge of Venice. How are they gonna how, how are they gonna fix this? So an opportunity arose. I wrote it down. The nephew of the emperor at Constantinople was kind of a suitor to the throne, and his name was Prince Alexis Angelus. So the the gambit was to take him. The, the Crusaders would sail him to Constantinople, and the people of Constantinople who allegedly didn't like their emperor would embrace this new prince to be their new emperor. Well, <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> they, they, they didn't embrace this prince and they rallied behind their current emperor. And so, so you know, the, the, the citizens of Constantinople, you know, kind of naively, if you will, allowed some of the crusaders to wander into the city before the battle actually started. And, they began observing all of the wealth and riches of the city. It's like, whoa, this, this was a plum ripe, ripe for the picking. And, um, and, so, and so they couldn't work out a deal with Constantinople. They were not going to pay them anything to help them with their, with their shipbuilding costs. And so they, what was left? They were going to go to war against Constantinople and just rip it off. And boy, did they rip it off. And that was, uh, yeah, and, and to your point, um, you know, at money and politics again, but uh, most of the crusaders uh, only get paid based on what they can rape and pillage from whatever <laughs> they conquer. So if they, if they weren't going to be able to get it out of Constantinople 
And, uh, and at that point as well, because they didn't have the money, it didn't look like they were going to get down to Jerusalem to take the money from the, uh, the Muslims and, uh, you know, the current uh, or the, the, you know, the, the, the rulers at that time, then what better opportunity is to take it from the richest, the greatest city on earth at the time, which is uh, the city of Constantinople. Yep, exactly right. Three days of unbridled looting, ripping off, stealing, all the, all the silver, gold, ivory goes, goes out, and hundreds upon hundreds of relics that had been collected there painstakingly over the centuries, all disappeared, including the sindom, the shroud. It disappears. And it's, um, of course, the Pope is livid with this. Pope Innocent III, he didn't plan on this. He didn't authorize this. Because his hope, he was trying to unify East and West. Now, there's no hope of unification now. I mean, they just destroyed their, their prized capital. <laughs> that, that's not happening. So the Pope was livid. And so in, um, in, 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 in 1215 was the, was the Fourth Lateran Council. This has been in plan for a long time. And... Um, and in, in, this was all, those were, were uh, members of the church, clergy, bishops, and cardinals, all, all converged there um, in, um, in Rome. Um, and it's, um, and to, uh, to and, and one of the things that was established there is, is called um, uh, Canon 62. Now, Canon 62 was instituted because of all these stolen relics that were coming out um, there, uh, plus a lot of fakes and phonies were being created because, hey, there's money in this. Like you just said, money in politics, boy, there's money here. Oh yeah, this is, this is, this is the bone of St. Bar Bartholomew. Yep, yep, sure is, here it is. Come get your, come get your relics. It's, um, and so it became an industry. And so the Pope was very afraid that this was going to bring great embarrassment to the church and just in just um, so he issued an edict uh, in, in 1215, basically saying, if this was not a relic that was already venerated as a relic in Constantinople, and but you know, in 1204, then then it could not be considered a relic. And it would have to have special approval by the Pope to be authorized as a genuine relic. So that means nothing, you know, all this stuff that was, that was, that was coming, if, if you couldn't demonstrate and prove that, that, this, that, that this was originally venerated prior to 1204, it could not be considered a relic. Well, now this is important because the Pope issued a, 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 a edict of, of excommunication on on all the crusaders who stole relics and didn't and didn't return them well no one's going to return anything i mean uh -huh. and 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 so there and so these 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 provenances all get all get bogus up they're it's you know they're they they all have false provenances now with false stories about what the, about who this relic is from and what miracles are associated it was all invented and it's, um, you know, just to show that, it, oh, no, 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 this, 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 this wasn't stolen from Constantinople. No, 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 no. And so it was all to cover their tracks. But now with the shroud, it just simply went underground. And so we don't know where it went. I mean, we have clues. But essentially, it, it, it was really, there's not much information about where it was. This is called the missing years between 1204 and 1356, when Jeffrey has it. Well, and, and if, if you mind, uh, the other thing too is, um, if you had stolen a relic, it wasn't not only that you had a false relic, but if you had stolen a relic, then the Pope Innocent III, he would excommunicate you. And uh, because he wanted all those relics to go back, I don't know, you know whether he wanted them to go to Rome or to Constantinople, but he wanted the official relics and he wanted those to go back, to be given back to the rightful owner. So if you had taken it, however, under what auspices you had taken it, you're not going to tell anybody. 
you're right. going to keep it secret. So that kind of leads up to what you're talking about, these missing years between threat of excommunication and finally saying, hey, here it is. Right, exactly. So, you know, one of the theories in terms of who has it, where it went was uh, Othon de la Roche was, a, was a, a, a knight and a nobleman from Burgundy, France. And he was given uh, authority over the Blackernai area of Constantinople. Blackernai was a, a section of the city. And in that section was a, was a, was a church or a cathedral, um, um, St. Saint, uh, Mary's of Blackernai. And, and, there, and, he, and, and a, a crusader, a chronicler, kind of a historian, chronicles that every Friday in that church, this, there was, there was this, this shroud that raised itself upright uh, every Friday. And it was probably, we think that there was kind of a, there was kind of a contraption where they had a, had a pulley system and pulled it up out of, the, out of the box, you know, gradually over the course of time. Um, the theory is, is that, you know, starts off at 6 a.m., the first watch of the day, just a, just a couple feet, Jesus as a baby. Another, at nine o'clock, a little higher, Jesus as a boy. At 12 noon, a little higher, Jesus as, as, a, as a man, all the way up, Jesus, the crucified Lord at three o'clock, which is the same hour which Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross. So that's what was happening liturgically with the shroud in 1204 in black or not. Well, Othon, he, he, he had jurisdiction over, over black and I, and, and so it's no wonder that he has possession of it in Athens. And it's, um, in fact, there is a, there is a reference in this, um, in this article. Hold on, let me find it here. Um, so here's the reference for, uh, that was written in 1204 by the by the brother of um of the of the emperor and uh, i don't know i don't have page numbers on my but i think it's i like page four here yep. it says um in april of last year crusading army having falsely set out to liberate the holy land instead laid waste the city of constantine during the sack troops of venice and france looted even the holy sanctuaries the Venetians partitioned the treasures of gold, silver, and ivory, while the French did the same with the, with the, with the relics of the saints. And most sacred of all, the linen in which our Lord Jesus Christ was wrapped after his death and before the resurrection. We know that the sacred objects are preserved by their predators in Venice, in France, and other places, the sacred linen in Athens. Now, Interestingly, Othon is made the um, is made the Duke of Athens. It's Athens is given to him as his as his fiefdom, as kind of a reward for his efforts in this in in this crusade. And then, um, so there seems to be a clear connection between Othon and the shroud. Now, Othon eventually goes back to Burgundy, circa twelve twenty five or so. He and he joins up with the with the with the Knights Templars. He he becomes uh, you know pretty high up in the Templars, but he eventually dies just a couple of years later. He may have always been in the in the in the Templars, um, but um, but there uh, seems to be a Templar connection. Um, um, but I think it's probably as much of a family uh, a connection as well as a Templar because they were all all Templars anyways. And it's um, the Templars started in Burgundy a hundred years earlier. That that was that was the where, where they got that was where they originated, and um, so it, so Othon probably has it in Burgundy, and then um, the trail kind of goes cold. But but uh, but there's references to the shroud having been exhibited in in in, in Saint Stephen in Besançon, which is not far from Burgundy, um, in um, uh, the uh, and it's, um, but event, but ultimately, circa uh, 1350 or so, we see it as, as the possession of Jean de Vergy, who is the great, 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 great granddaughter of Othon. And uh, so it obviously stays in the family. And then Jean marries Geoffrey de Charnay, probably 1353 or four or so. And this is 
And this linen shroud, which was in her possession, was probably presented to Jeffrey as, as, a, as a dowry. This is what they did back in the Middle Ages so that, you know, in case something happened to Jeffrey, the, that it would return to her and provide a means of support, if you will. And it's um, and so so this is this is the uh, the connection. Now it's interesting. Back to this this um, this fourth Lateran Council and this Canon sixty two um, is that when Geoffrey petitioned the Pope to exhibit the shroud in Larray, the Pope authorized him to do it, but. He had to maintain a vow of silence. He could, not, he, he could not make any mention of where the shroud came from. Now, that's interesting. So now remember, he would not have been allowed to exhibit it had it been a new manufacturer. If it had just been conjured up by somebody as some kind of fake or fraud, it would never have been approved by the Pope. But the Pope approved it because Jeffrey was able to prove that this is the same cloth that was stolen from Black and I by Othon de la Roche and, 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 and observed there by that French chronicler, uh, you know, Robert de Clary. <clears throat> so that's really important. Why a vow of silence concerning its, its, its origin? Why? You know, mm. it's because if, if Jeffrey had indicated that this was from Constantinople, he would have been required to return it to Constantinople. Mm. And so that's why there had to be a vow of silence. Now, so there, there is another, this the article mentions, it doesn't have the pictures of it, but- If you don't mind, uh, let me interrupt you there. Yes. Uh, you know, two things. One of them is, uh, you know, we have the radiocarbon dating 1260 to 1390. And then we now have a, a, a date of the cloth uh, being referenced in 1204, which then says uh, that there's something wrong with the dating that, that took place, number one. And then number two, we now have the second reference. And there are other references as well, some of them more oblique, some of them more very descriptive. There's clearly references of... Um, you know, of, of just like this one where, hey, I, we need that shroud back that belongs to us. And, uh, you know, and if Othon de la Roche uh, took it into his possession as part of his payments, and, uh, you know, then he's not going to say anything, of course, be out of fear of excommunication. Sure. And then also, you know, a couple of hundred years later with, uh, with uh, you know, Jeffrey de Charny and then Jean de Charny, um, you know, they have it in their possession. Uh, there's a new pope. There's a new pope in town, and he's now not quite as upset as maybe Innocent III might have been as to how these uh, how the as to how these referent uh, as to how these relics got out of uh, Constantinople. Yeah, because it's 150 years later, and it's um, so now. What to to, to your point? Um, the reason 1204 is such an important date is because the cloth that was stolen in 1204 didn't just get there; it had been there since 944. Mm. And that's really important. So, so in other words, 1204 is already older than the oldest carbon date of 1260. And the cloth that they were referencing was brought there from, from Edessa in, 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 in 944. And it's, um, and so, so clearly the carbon date is wrong, period. You know, now, now, there are, I, I don't think the carbon date can be looked at for anything, is it, it, because we don't know how wrong it is. You could, well, maybe, it, maybe it's only off by this much. Well, how do you know? Maybe it's off by this much. How, you know, how do you know how much it's off by? You, we have no clue. And so I don't think the carbon date can be considered for anything at this point. Mm. Well, and you can... I think you can only say that the carbon date, assuming that there was grime and or there was cotton intermixed with a, an interweave, it probably dated that material that was used as a sample correctly, but it cannot be used. That sample is not and cannot be used as representative of the, rep, uh, of the rest of the cloth. 
And that no. is the, that's it. So it may that, have been done absolutely scientifically corrected correctly, but it did not date the cloth. It dated just that sample, which has uh, contamination and has repairs to it. And, and who knows what happened to it. So now let's go all the way back to first century. The most important reference is in the gospel of John. You know, Mary goes to the tomb, sees that the stone is rolled aside from the entrance. She peeks in, sees the body's gone, runs to find the apostles. And she says, someone has taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and I don't know where they put him. Well, Peter and John, what? What? What are you? So they run back down to the tomb. John gets there first, makes a point of letting us know that. The and apostle then, who Jesus loved. Yes. And then Peter finally gets there, hobbling, I suppose. And, 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 and Peter goes right inside the tomb. John follows him in. And Peter sees the linen cloth lying there. John also sees the linen cloth lying there and believes. Believes what? Believes that he had risen. <clears throat> now, so, it, you know, now he might not have understood what resurrection meant, but he knew something spectacular happened. So it begs the question, what did they see that Mary didn't see? Now, Mary doesn't go inside that tomb. And she just peeks in and sees that the body's gone. Peter and John go into the tomb, see the linen cloth lying there. Peter walks away wondering. He's not sure what he saw, but John knows exactly what he saw. Because John probably is recollecting things that Jesus said. He's, you know, three times at least as, as, as recorded in the Gospels that Jesus said that he would, be, he would be given up to be crucified on the third day. He would rise again. Three times he said this. And so John's saying, hmm, well, <laughs> uh, maybe this is what Jesus meant when he talked about resurrection. And it's um, so, so John believes. So this is interesting then. Because it was the linen cloth lying there that becomes the first piece of evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead. And based on that evidence, John becomes the very first person to believe in the resurrection. That's significant. <clears throat> now, here's what we have to ask ourselves. Was the linen cloth lying there only for the benefit of Peter and John? Or was it for the benefit of the whole world throughout all generations? That's the question. Because, because it, interestingly, the Gospels are silent on the Shroud after that resurrection Sunday. Now, I mean, even if it didn't have an image on it, it still contained the blood of the atonement. You'd think there'd be some reference to it. Because in Acts chapter 19, it talks about Paul circulating handkerchiefs and 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 and, and aprons that 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 was um that 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 belonged to him and he circulated among the people and people be healed based on the anointing of these other fabrics that were in the possession of paul how much more of an anointing would the linen shroud of christ that bore the blood of the atonement how much more of an of an anointing would that have now you gotta know that this cloth was not destroyed, it was not thrown away, it was not burned, it was, it, was, it was collected and maintained. Now, they might not have known what to do with it, being Jewish, you know, covered with blood, wrapped a corpse, clean, it's, you know, it's doubly unclean. Well, wait a minute, you know, Jesus was dead, but now he's not. So is it clean or unclean? We don't know. <laughs> Why don't we send it to the Gentiles and let them figure it out? <laughs> it's, um, and, it, it, you know, so... So well, plus, cotton, if, if you don't mind me interrupting there, plus sure. you have the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish hierarchy, basically probably wanting to find, if there, if there is a rumor of the cloth, which I'm sure there had to have been, if there's a rumor of the resurrection, which there had to have been, then the Sanhedrin wanted to put that down. So if, if uh, Peter and John or whoever else might have had it, Joseph of Arimathea or whatever, they had to keep that cloth in hiding because they couldn't necessarily, you know, let let the Sanhedrin know because they'd want to destroy it, or the Romans would have wanted to destroy destroy it. So it had to have been kept in hiding in some fashion. Absolutely, 
And you got to think that these gospels were written about 30 years after these events when persecution was in high gear. And so, I mean, yeah, they're recollecting events that occurred, you know, 30 years earlier, but they're being written 30 years later. And, you know, and, you know, James was killed in 42, he was thrown, you know, he was, he was, what, I think he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple or something. I can't remember how he was killed. Then that's when they arrested Peter, tried to kill him. So persecution was hot. Mm-hmm. And so they're not going to have any overt mention of this cloth, where it is that would give any kind of clue as, as to, as to, as to who had it or where they could find it. Well, and even Peter was, uh, was prohibited from speaking about Christ, uh, you know, before the Sanhedrin. Exactly. So, so this, um, so it, it, it's, so now this is a real interesting verse or uh, not. So let's, let's, let's fast forward then to, I'm going to look at the fourth century, um, Pope Sylvester instituted by papal papal decree in 325 that the church should celebrate the holy sacrifice of the mass representing the body and blood of Christ on a linen cloth consecrated by the bishop as if it were the clean shroud of Christ. That lets you know this this is the development of the very center of the of the i mean in every church be it catholic orthodox protestant you know whether you know granted there's different views on the on the on the uh, on the uh, on the on communion um but it's the central sacrament of the church partaking in the body and blood of christ and so here what could be more representative of the body and blood of christ than his burial shroud and here pope and uh, pope uh Sylvester in 325 saying that the that the altar needed to be covered with a long rectangular linen cloth representing the clean shroud of Christ. So that indicated that there was awareness of the shroud's existence um, in the early fourth century. By the way, this is a very important point too, in that you know, we get I get constant uh, objections by people saying, well. John 1940 says he was bound in strips, so he must have been wound like a mummy. Well, not according to Pope Sylvester in 325. And it's um, so then then you can now here's another one. The very uh, the very next century. This is uh, it's probably late fourth, early fifth century. This is Bishop Theodore of Moptuestia of Antioch, a very prominent theologian. Um, he developed the catechism with the instructions before the celebration of the mass. And this is what he said. And he was describing the, how, the, how the two deacons bring this linen cloth, we just heard, talked about, down in, and they, that, that the, here, here's how it reads. This is why the deacons who spread the linens on the altar represent the figure or the image on the linen cloths at the burial. Whoa! So here is a reference to the two image to the to the two deacons represent the image, double mm. image, frontal image, dorsal image, on the linen cloths at the burial. <clears throat> so because obviously you know they don't have the actual shroud itself to cover the linen cloth, so you so they're doing it as a kind of a symbolism. In the um, I don't know where the cloth was, but you know, obviously, this is this is instructions for every church to follow. And it's, it's um, go ahead. It would be, yeah, it would be interesting too. Uh, and I don't know the history of uh, transubstantiation, but you know, in the Catholic Church and at that time, when you do the blood and the uh, and the bread, that is supposed to have the body and blood of Christ right there. So putting it on the actual shroud, or even putting it on now a uh, a representative of the shroud is kind of one way to really see how transubstantiation uh, from the Catholic Church would take place, because you now have, you know, both of the the Eucharist materials as being, you know, right next to that, uh, right next to the shroud. Absolutely, absolutely. So now we move to the sixth century. Now this is a translation of John chapter twenty, verse five and six. This is called the Mosaic Rite of Holy Week. This is. 
This is a, this is a group of Arab Catholics that immigrated to Spain. And it said, and they translate this verse of scripture this way. Peter, run, uh, Peter ran with John to the tomb and saw the recent imprints of the dead and risen man on the linens. Oh my goodness. That's not in your translation of John chapter 20, verses five and six. But this is how they choose to translate it. Why? Because it must be based on knowledge of that they had knowledge of something, that they were aware of something that, that was in existence at that time. And so that's a really important verse. Peter ran with John to the tomb and saw the recent imprints of the dead and risen man on the linens. That's amazing. That is really amazing. And, uh, uh, you know, so how it's interesting how then the different translations now, of course, this is the sixth century. So, um, you know, you have the, the, the written down uh, versions of what happened in Greek. And, uh, and then as they, you know, I guess progressed, there must have been, to your point, some kind of a tradition that said, no, 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 those weren't just linens. Those were uh, with the recent imprints of the dead and risen man on those linens. And uh, wow, what a, uh, what a statement. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, they, they specifically <clears throat> retranslated that scripture to, to, to input something that they were obviously aware of. Mm. And um, now we go to the 8th century. Now, there was a period of time, it's called the iconoclasm. There, so you know what 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 happened with um, with these with these sacred images is that they really proliferated, and so all of your Orthodox churches and well Orthodox and Catholic were kind of united at that point, but um, but all these early churches had, had beautiful icon images of, of of Jesus based on the true likeness, which is what the shroud was called, you know, in the early centuries. Uh, the, it was described as the true likeness of Christ, not made by human hands, and and um, and so the um, and so these these painted icon images based on the shroud proliferated everywhere. Well, it got to the point where there was a movement to say, you know, th this may be a form of idolatry. Maybe we shouldn't do this. And so there was an iconoclastic movement to kind of stamp out all these icon images, which is. Um, and so um, well, if you don't mind, let me add something there. As I understand it, so Justinian made some coins in 643 to 645 with a replica of the, uh, the shroud image of Jesus on them. And uh, these are the gold Solidus. And then there were some other coins, smaller value coins. And uh, right after that, uh, then there were a series of earthquakes and uh, then the, the Catholic Church, or the, the church at the time, then said, those uh, images and iconic icons that you used are the cause of those earthquakes. And then that caused then those images to be removed. And then it wasn't until like 940 or so when the image came back and they came back on the coins. Yeah, well, in the 8th century, at the Second Council of, of Nicaea in 787, there was an argument to bring back sacred images. And so, and so this is from the Second Council of Nicaea. And it says, in the two years preceding the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus Vespasian, he was the emperor, the, the faithful were warned by the Holy Ghost to leave Jerusalem and go to the kingdom of Agrippa, still allied to the Romans. I, that's, that's Syria. Thus going forth from the city, they took with them their most sacred, their most precious objects. This is how the images and other sacred objects were taken to Syria, probably Edessa, and were and were to be found there. So this is a reference to how the how these sacred images were taken from Jerusalem and how they ended up in Syria. Then, is um, regarding why you now there's a story about how. Saint Jude, uh, Jude Thaddeus. Uh, we think I personally think it's Jude, as in one of the twelve apostles, was um, brought a um, at behest of a messenger was sent from Edessa from King Abgar V, who was dying of something, most likely leprosy, and um, 
and this fame and knowledge of Jesus was all over the known world as this amazing healer. Well, anyways, so so the legend go the story goes is that is that Jude eventually returns to Edessa with with a cloth with an image on it, and Abgar he beholds this image, he becomes a believer, and so and and he's healed, and so and this is these are all, so all your your Orthodox Church derive all their stories talk about saint jude bringing this cloth to edessa circa first century and then um and then eventually it becomes known as the true likeness of christ and it's um so having said that then the um so regarding why jude brought the sacred cloth to king abgar now theodore that's what's his name um the theodore the studite not exactly sure what that means. Uh, he says this, the, the reason that Jude brought the cloth to King Abgar was to clearly grant his divine features as savior who had been covered with it, imprinted the form of his own face and portraying it, touching the cloth with his own skin. Now we have to understand here that in the early centuries, the cloth was folded up in such a way as most people only ever saw the face image, if they ever saw it at all. And in the, um, and so, but there was this gradual revelation, if you will, that the shroud was more than just a face image, but it was actually a full body image. And so here's a quote from Pope Stephen III, also eighth century. Christ spread out his entire body on a linen cloth that was white as snow. On this cloth, marvelous as, as it is to see, the glorious image of the Lord's face and the length of his entire and most noble body has been divinely transferred. Well, now, we're, now we know we're talking about a full body image here, mm. not just a face image. So the, um, now by 944, Edessa had fallen to Islam and so the emperor in Constantinople was concerned about the well-being of this most holy of all Christian relics, the true likeness. And so he sends the entire Byzantine imperial army, marches them down 600 miles to surround Edessa. But they're, but they're not looking for a fight. They bring with them 200 prisoners of war, bags of silver. They're just looking to make a trade. And so the Muslims are pretty sharp and they said, we'll take that deal. And so without any kind of, bloodshed or anything else, they return to Constantinople on August 16th, 944. And, and so the Gregory, the archdeacon of the Hagia Sophia, that's the big cathedral there in Constantinople. And it's, um, he delivers a sermon that night in the, um, in, the, in the palace. So if you can imagine now, here's the scene. You have Gregory up on the, up on the platform, the emperor's throne, they lay out the shroud on the emperor's throne and crown it with the emperor's crown. Then Gregory, he starts to deliver a sermon and he's standing right next to the shroud and he's pointing things out. And this is what he says. The splendor has been impressed uniquely by the drops of agony sweat sprinkled from, from the face. These are truly the beauties that produce the coloring of Christ's imprint which has been embellished further by the drops of blood sprinkled from his own side, blood and water there, sweat and image here. Sweat and image, not talking about paint. He's talking about sweat and image. And then blood and water, he's talking about the side wound. Well, now we know we're not talking about just a face image. We're talking about a full body image. And then, um, and then in the um, 11th century, another references is, is, is made. The, um, this is a, a Latin version of the first century Abgar legend, which we talked about, you know, Jude bringing the cloth to King Abgar, the first century, who's then healed of leprosy. It says, says this, this is sent from the 11th century. But if you wish to see my face in the flesh, behold, I send you a linen on which you will discover not only the features of, of my face, but a divinely copied configuration of my entire body so now what do we know it's a linen it's not it's not a it's not a board it's not wood it's not it's a linen and in the 12th century this is from uh oh 
Odoricus Vitalis, it's a tough word, names, um, who, wrote the who wrote the ecclesiastical history in 1141. This is what he says. A precious linen on which he had wiped off the sweat of his face and on which an image of the same savior shines forth, miraculously painted or imprinted. This image shows to whoever looks upon it, the appearance and the size of the Lord's body. Once again, talking about a full yeah. body image, not just a face image. And then 13th century, this is from uh, Gervais of Tilbury, circa 1213. It says this, the story is passed down from the archives of ancient authority that the Lord uh, prostrated himself with his entire body on the whitest of linen, so that by divine power there was impressed on the linen a most beautiful imprint of not only the face, but the entire body of the Lord. So it seems there's a lot in here passed down from the icar mm. archives of ancient authority. He's telling us in the year 1213, this, this has been around for a long time. And then, and then he says, on the whitest of linen, once again, a reference to a linen and not yep. something else. So that's, that is, uh, that's, of course, the shroud is linen. And, and then, Tilbury is in, uh, in England, I believe. And so this information uh, is not only in France or not only in Constantinople or Athens, but then in, uh, in France. And then it's, kind of, it's already up to, uh, to England that there is this whitest of linen with the, an image of the entire body of the Lord. Great point. And then um, we've, um, the, we've, we've, we've talked about Robert de Clary and what he saw. And mm -hmm. then um, we've talked about the reference in 1204 when it was, when it was stolen and how it went to Athens. And, and then, you know, the, the, the other thing that is, is really sig highly significant, but it's more of an image thing. And it, it's, it's the Hungarian prey manuscript. And for uh, your listeners should, should Google that and look at yeah. it. This is a, um, this is a, 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 a series of picture codexes that were, that were, bound into a book in 1192 first book ever bound in the hungarian language it's a book talking about it's the history of the of the hungarian people and the the artist has various scenes he has seen one where jesus is laid out on his burial shroud scene two where he's wrapped in his burial shroud and the um and these the artist who made these images was an eyewitness to the cloth that was in Constantinople sometime between 1160 and 1170. Now, this is already 100 years older than the oldest carbon date of, of 1260. But what, is he, what, what does he put on in, in his painting? Now, for me, first and foremost, we see a long, narrow, rectangular cloth enveloping the body lengthwise. That's exactly what we see on the shroud. You got to think about it just for a minute. I mean, the shroud is pretty unusual. It's three and a half feet wide, but 14 feet long. I mean, I imagine there's any number of ways to wrap a corpse. You could be buried in a shroud, in a shroud too. We all could. You yeah. ordered off of Amazon right now, 300 bucks, six by nine is the dimensions. Comes with straps and all. And it's... Um, Six by nine, that kind of makes sense. But three and a half by 14 feet, that's kind of unusual. And yet that's exactly what the Hungarian prey manuscript represents. Then on top of that, the zigzag lines that correlate with the very complex herringbone pattern weave of the, of the, of, of the shroud. And most significantly, you have an L-shaped pattern of burns, which correlates with a, with a burn incident that occurred in Constantinople prior to that, probably an accident from a bishop or a cardinal walking around the altar where the, the cloth was probably folded up on the altar and, the, and, and his sensor, you know, a sensor with hot coals in it, probably hit the altar and it was a, an oops <laughs> moment where these coals fell onto the cloth burning all the way through it. And um, well, those those pictures though that's the exact same thing we see on the shroud today and yet that l-shaped configuration of burns is picked up in the hungarian prey manuscript 
that is the proverbial, you know, they uh, probably overused term, the smoking gun. The smoking incense. The smoking <laughs> incense that definitively, definitively links the cloth to yeah. Constantinople. So this tells us then that this cloth was there in 1204, stolen during the Fourth Crusade, goes underground, probably in possession of the Knights Templars and, and certainly in the family of Othon de la Roche. And then finally reemerges in 1356. We're 150 years past the catastrophe of the, of the Fourth Crusade. It's kind of safe now to bring it up, providing you don't tell anybody where you got it from, that, <laughs> that vow of silence that Jeffrey had to take. And it's, um, it kind of, so in other words, this is what nobody looked at in 1988. They just assumed the carbon date was correct. They assumed that Jeffrey must have been involved in the fabrication of this thing. They must. They assumed that 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 Bishop Darcisse was uh, was uh, was right by alleging that it was just the work of an artist. And so there you go. You know, case closed. Well, I say the case has been reopened, wide open. And Absolutely. It's, um, and so you know, so now it's important to look a little deeper, a little further into this historical trail, and this just touches the surface of it and, and there are and and this is great research i uh and uh, you know and, and it, it's it's so interesting to see how many new pieces of evidence just like you have them and then now stretching it out to where it was here in the third century here in the fourth here in the sixth here in the eighth and uh and really now piecing that together and i think uh you know what i would like to see is um uh, you know, you talk about in 944, the, uh, the trade of money and, and prisoners for the shroud, it would be really interesting to see if there's any documentation on the Islamic side, uh, mm. either in Persia or in, I don't know yeah. where, but that, that actually says, yep, we received 200 uh, centenaria of silver or 200 centenaria of gold or whatever it is. And to be able to then corroborate that transaction, because uh, it, it has to be there. And then there's so many other pieces in here where potentially even in the, uh, the Vatican archives, there's something written somewhere where, you know, it corroborates the other side of the equation. So sure. you have, you know, Bishop Darcy's letters and you have him complaining. Well, on the other hand, you, you know, the Pope probably has something in the archives that, that is actually in there. It's just somebody has to find it. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, we we still have a lot of work to do, but man, it's just really fun with all these new clues are, are, are coming together. And, and it's, um, so I, I think yeah. that there is a, there is a true Renaissance coming for the shroud and, um, and, and boy, it's uh, right on time because the world seems to be careening out of control and, 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 and we need something as profound as the shroud to, kind of you know get people's attention yeah and it, um so um and you know, and yeah exactly and you know what's interesting too is that uh you know you have uh all of us you know depending on science every day and 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 everything and yet here is this image and here were these scientists in 1978 and they could only say it's definitely not painted it's definitely not dyed we don't know what the cause of that image is and you had the best scientists in the world that at that time to be able to figure that out, and they still couldn't figure it out. And it may be that it's never figured out. I think that's probably a strong I, likelihood. I, yes. All the deep, all the deep <laughs> things of God are all mysteries. So I have yep. a feeling the shroud's going to remain a mystery for a long time. Yeah, exactly. Well, and with that, I'm going to close this out. We've definitely gone over on time, but uh, really, I, you know, I, I love the way you, you know, you, you did the argument. It's either true or it's false, and uh, you either believe these things or you don't. And then here is now proof and proof and proof and proof and proof that gets us so much closer to being able to say, yes, the shroud is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. And then even better than that, the carbon dating that was done is just you know, has now been debunked and continues to be even more and more debunked because it it ignores this this evidence. It absolutely ignores this evidence. And there's one one more important point also is that there is no artist in the 14th century that had the capability of producing the shroud. 
Now, Macron tries to suggest Simone Martini. Gary Beacon, he suggests it was, you know, Nato Cecciarelli. I've looked at their artwork. Nothing that they have done even compares remotely to what we see on the shroud. Yeah. It's nonsense. There's nobody in the fourth century capable of producing this. Yeah, and that is uh, that is so true. That is so true. Well, with that, uh, let me close this out again, Russ. Thank you so much. We're going to do another one here uh, pretty soon, which is on uh, your uh, your your uh, pamphlet here, which is on that the shroud is the proof of purchase. It is the receipt for the payment that was made through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And exactly. it is, uh, it's a fascinating thing. And I don't want to hint any more at that, but <laughs> it is really good. So we'll get, we'll get together and talk about that as well again. In Sounds any case, great. yeah, thank you so much, Russ. And in any case, please go to guypowell.com. Sign up for more episodes. If you see this one or hear this one rather on Apple or Spotify or any of the other uh, platforms, please give it five stars so that more and more people will get to learn about what's happening in the world of the Shroud and even more importantly, what's happening in uh, the world of Jesus Christ. Thank you again, Russ. My pleasure, Guy. Thank you.